Fit Nation. Fit Nation. Fit Nation. Awesome. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to Misfit Nation. If you are a veteran and you are struggling or feel like you are leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you don't have uh, friends or family in your circle that uh, would support you or you're embarrassed to talk to them, you'll be a burden to them, call the 1-800 number the hotline for uh, mental health services at 1-800-273-8255 and take option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. This includes the military broadcast radio app and check out our family of shows. They're all hosted by veterans. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the underscore misfit nation. That's the underscore misfit nation. This will keep you up to date with all our latest shows, episodes, and of course, stories of our guests. Speaking of which, this show is part of our Memorial Day series for the month of May. We are bringing in fellow service members and family members of those who we have lost to share their stories. And right now we, we have an uh, active duty service member of 17 years, 17 long, wonderful years. Jeffrey on the line from Camp Pendleton. Jeffrey, how you doing? Welcome to the Misfit Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I, so we had a for the listeners out there, it was a private joke between myself and Rich. He asked me how long I've been in, and it, it just rolled out of my tongue saying, oh, 17 long, miserable years. And, you know, being a service member and active duty service member and veterans, that's what we thrive on is, is, is all that dark humor, you know. Yes. That's what keeps us going, especially when we're in the suck, right? Yes. Um, so speaking of the suck, you know, like I have been in for 17 years. Um, I'm hoping to continue on for another three reached that 20 and then made a quiet promise to myself to do another three years on top of that so 23 years is when I'll, I'll call it quits and uh make room for somebody else um hang up them boots and let some uh, young boot come in and put them on and and do the job for you exactly and then I can you know I'm not going to grow out a beard because I, I can't grow out beards my face is you know being Asian it's it's an impossibility for me but you know, maybe I'll be cantankerous and salty. I, I like being cantankerous and salty, um, which is what I do anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, 17 years has been has been really good. Uh, I, I really really enjoyed my time in, and you know, as just like everybody else who's, who served, I, I will miss the camaraderie. You know, miss that right away as soon as you you put on a different outfit and go to work with a different environment. You'll, oh yeah yeah like even though for however long of a time you've been in you you, you bitch and moan and you complain about oh i have duty i have this i've watched i've blood i've got whatever as soon as you get out of those gates you're like Ugh, i miss those morons <laughs> i miss those idiots jumping off of the barracks breaking their legs i miss all the good times <laughs> Not that all these no. things actually happen. <laughs> no, no, they don't. They do not happen in this great military that that it is. Um, it might happen in Russia, um, but you know, who knows? Who knows? But if even if they they have a viable military, anyway. Um, so I got invited to talk about not about me because my my service is a bit 
you know, meh, it's a bit blah. I didn't, you know, I didn't do any of the, the big glory um, services or, or, or deployments or what have you. And I, I made some dents, you know, I fought for, fought against don't ask, don't tell, uh, fought for open service, marriage equality, all that stuff. But I, I guess the one thing that I'm super proud of is I made a teeny tiny minuscule contribution uh, in honoring my dad. Um, my dad, so I'm one of 10 kids. Oh. Yeah. So my dad is a World War II veteran. Um, he was born in the 1920s. Um, he enlisted in the Philippine Army first. Um, and right when the Japanese decided to make their, their coming out party uh, over Pearl Harbor, the Philippine Army got absorbed into the U.S. Army, which, you know, as you do. Um, and so for four months, really, from December 7th, 1941 till April 9th, 1942, um, my dad and the army that he served in, MacArthur and all those guys, they held off the Japanese for four months in what was known as the Battle of Bataan in the Philippines. Um, the Bataan campaign was a bloody campaign. Um, it was one of the earliest real significant defeats for the military, the US military in its history. Uh, and something happened out of Bataan that really encapsulated uh, the whole mythos of that battle. Um, when MacArthur was ordered to leave uh, the Bataan Peninsula, the Philippine and American troops, they had to surrender. There, there was no going around it. I mean, they wanted to fight, but they didn't have enough supplies. They didn't have enough food. They were slowly getting whittled down. They got to the point where when the Japanese advanced from the north of the Philippines all the way down to the appendix that is the Bataan Peninsula, they were, getting, they were all getting captured and they were getting pushed out into uh, the fortress of Corregidor which is a tiny, tiny island. Um, eventually, they just, they, General Wainwright just gave up. He just said, you know what? Because I want to preserve human life, I'm going to surrender and we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, the Japanese will treat us like, like soldiers. And sure enough, they didn't. <laughs> um, and so thus began this atrocity called the Bataan Death March, which my dad was part of. Uh, the Bataan Death March was, like I said, it was an atrocity and a violation of what we now know as the Geneva Conventions or the rule of war. Uh, you had one of the largest armies uh, surrender en masse. 75,000, was it 75,000? Yeah, 75,000 troops surrendered to the Japanese, a vastly inferior army and severely outnumbered, they won. And they, they had to transport this large body of surrendered troops from point A to point B, because where are you gonna keep them, right? So when they kept, when they identified uh, an old barracks in the middle of Luzon Island, they decided to march all 75,000 from point of surrender to that POW camp. POW camp. Um, that was 60 miles. 
on foot, and it took him about a week. Um, I didn't hear about this story until later on in life, when my dad was getting older, and some of my family historians, they would mention it, like, oh, yeah, your dad was in this thing called the Bataan Death March, the Death March this, the Death March that. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm sick and tired of the Death March. But it turns out that it was a very a very significant part of our own family's history. He survived the death march, but along the way, he saw probably the grossest violations of human life by a conquering army. What we're seeing in Russia right now with how the Russians are, are treating Ukrainian civilians, it's along those lines. But imagine like a week or two, uh, a long column of defeated troops who are emaciated, they didn't have food, they had no medical supplies, they had nothing. And they're being forced to march these 60 miles under duress, sometimes tied up, sometimes wounded by the Japanese. And along the way, they're getting beaten, they're getting murdered, um, they're getting abused. If you were a civilian along the route and you were caught helping these troops with food or whatever, they were beaten and they were abused and sometimes they were killed. So at the conclusion of this long, arduous death march, my dad somehow survived. He was incarcerated in a, a, a prisoner of war camp called Camp O'Donnell. That used to be um, a, a basic, a basic air, a basic training uh, army base. So the, the Filipinos would go train over there and become part of the Philippine army, and so on and so forth. But logistically speaking, the Japanese saw this base as the perfect uh, holding holding area for all these POWs. And you know, and to be frank. If you were a conquering army, that's what you would use, right? You'd use your enemy's uh, space to, to hold all these prisoners. Unfortunately, <laughs> the base wasn't that big. So you had 75,000 troops. Approximately 10,000 of them were Americans. So they were segregated into two areas. One camp were just for the Americans and the other camp were for all the Filipinos. I don't wanna say that the Americans got it better than the Filipinos because neither of the, those guys got any reprieve. I mean, my dad, when I was interviewing him for a, a, a thesis project, he was conjuring up memories like, oh, I was part of a mass burial detail. So I would dig up a 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot mass grave and I would bury people in there. He was in that camp for seven months, <laughs> a full deployment. Yeah. Uh, and in those seven months, he contracted a whole host of diseases, beriberi, yellow fever, typhoid, malaria, whatever. It's, it's on his record. And, if you want, I'll, I'll show you that those paperwork uh, afterwards. Um, he got so deathly ill 
and again, this is part of his whole storytelling. He, he got so deathly ill that, you know, living with all these emaciated bodies was not an option for him. So what he did was because these, these huts were on stilts, as most Filipino architecture was at the time because of the rain, he hid underneath the huts where he, he had to recuperate. That's where he recuperated. Now, imagine, it's a fairly sizable, you know those HESCO huts that we had in like Camp Wilson or whatever, yes. and these massive training areas? Imagine those huts, but then you're cramped with like a hundred guys in there. Right. And they're all packed like sardines, and they're all sick, and they're all starving, and they're all wounded, and it's just miserable. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst of the worst. And my dad was underneath all that. So all of these bodily fluids, all these excrements, all this crap, it eventually fell on him, right? Um, another part of the story is that he stayed under that, that hut away from everybody else, and thankfully away from the Japanese because they would do their you know, rounds as, as it were and pick up random people and murder them. Um, or make them disappear. It rained one time in the camp, and it rained so much that he was able to revive, to be revived because of the cool water. Uh, and that's how he survived, right? He, if it wasn't for that rain and the fact that he, and I'm quoting him because I'm not religious, he prayed the most beautiful prayer that he could ever come up with because he's Catholic. He did so many Hail Marys and so many rosaries and so many this that he believed that God Almighty came down and, and, gave, and provided him that rain and allowed him to live. Now, you'd think that living through seven months of that pure hell, that that's it. You'd be dead, right? right? Miraculously, a whole bunch of dudes actually survived that camp. Some of them were transported to Japan. Some of them were moved to other camps. My dad had a very different story. Now, while he was languishing in this camp, actually, let me reverse back. Before he, when he enlisted, he enlisted with a friend. And he was with that same friend for his basic training his A school, as it were, all the way to the Battle of Bataan to surrender to the Bataan Death March to incarceration as a POW. Now, along that route, his friend got wounded or he was sick enough that he somehow received amnesty and was released by the Japanese. Because the Japanese had that. They, had, they, they pretty much said... We need to have the Filipinos on our side. So, you know, it, let's release some of the most sickly and wounded. And maybe they'll, they'll see things our way and they'll become our allies, and, you know, whatever. Yeah, it didn't turn out that way. So my dad's friend went all the way back to our hometown, which was 300 miles away on the other side of the country, found my grandfather, and even in his near death state told my grandfather your son is still alive in this camp 
You need to rescue him or he will die. Wow. So my grandfather gathered whatever he could in terms of money and possession, left his family of 11 kids. (laughs) (laughs) Are you keeping track of the number? Left his large family and made the 300 mile trek through enemy lines, through combat, all the way to Manila, which was declared an open city. Uh, once he got to Manila and he successfully evaded the Japanese and a lot of the, the actual combat, um, allegedly he stayed at like churches and chapels and whatnot at, when he had to rest and continued on his way. When he got to Manila, he went straight to the Red Cross, which was still functioning. God knows how, but they were. (laughs) There was still functioning. I mean, I guess if Manila was declared an open city by the Japanese, by the conquering army, then yeah, you've you've got a chance to still operate. So my grandfather became a volunteer corpsman, which is what... I am, by the way, I'm a hospital corpsman in the Navy. Um, He made it his personal task to go through and see every single camp where uh, wounded Americans and wounded Filipinos are to find his son. Wow. So he managed, I don't know how he did it, but he managed to get to my dad's camp in Camp O'Donnell. It's about 60 miles from Manila inland. It's near what was known as Clark Air Force Base. I mean, it's still called Clark. Um, It's in the middle of the Luzon Island. My grandfather made it all the way to that camp, got into the camp with a bunch of other Red Cross workers uh, to provide aid to the wounded. And he made it his business to visit every single hut to visually look for his son. Now, if you've been out in combat for a while, combat changes people, right? It happens. Now, imagine if you've been beaten, you've been starved, you've been denied medical help, uh, you've been dehydrated, uh, you've been abused. Your physical manifestation, your physical uh, appearance is going to change like no other. You're a whole different person. The story goes that... My dad, when he saw his, my grandfather, his dad, walking through the same hut that he was in, he reached out to him and he said, Papa, Papa, it's me, it's me, it's your son, it's your son, Espiritu. And my grandfather didn't recognize him because he was just skin and bone. If you've ever seen pictures of, of, of those prisoners of war, uh, in the Bataan Death March, some of them were just wearing loincloths. And you can see the rib cages, they're thin, they're emaciated, they walking skeletons, and that's what my dad was. The only way that my grandfather recognized my dad was because of the scar that he had in his hand. And knowing that he saw that scar on the right hand, he's like, oh my God, it's my son. I cannot believe I found you. So he gave him after a bit of a tearful reunion, you know, they, my grandfather told my, my dad, here's some food, 
here's some, you know, some, some meager supplies. What I need you to do is I need you to wait here and I'll be back for you. So my grandfather, when he left, you know, obviously my dad didn't want him to leave, but he just saw his family for the first time in a combat zone of all places. Um, my grandfather left. He came back a couple of days later to that same camp, found his son and told him, gather up your things, we're leaving. We're like, what, what? What do you mean gather up my things, we're leaving? No, we're getting out of here. Like we're gonna make a run for it. So I guess the theory goes is that he, he, my granddad, used the same excuse of, oh, we're, we're gonna take all these emaciated people out because they're super sick and we're gonna take them back and you know take care of them. Uh, my dad, even in his weakened, defeated, damn near dead state, told my grandfather, we got to bring some of these guys out. And so at random, they grabbed 10 guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> 10 guys, right? And just walked out the gate. Outstanding. Right by the Japanese guards. I'm pretty sure they got bribed. I mean, you just can't walk into a camp and be like, we're taking these 10 dudes out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they got bribed, but they walked out of that gate and disappeared. So for the next couple of years, until the Americans came back and liberated the Philippines, um, my dad was in hiding. He was recuperating. Uh, first in Manila, and then he went underground. He joined uh, the resistance, uh, the resistance movement in the Philippines, and as soon as the American army came back uh, after the Battle of Leyte Gulf, he reconnected and rejoined the American army, and he continued to serve until um, he became a staff sergeant, an E6. Um, he then, you know, subsequently he left the, the U.S. army, uh, became a successful lawyer in our town, and raised a family of 10 kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know his story doesn't end after combat um, his story of struggle and trauma I'd like that using that term very broadly it continued for a long long time um, almost to the day till he died which was in 2012 so after the end of World War II, when the Philippines received independence, President Truman was forced to sign what was called the Rescission Act of 1946. The Rescission Act stated that because the Philippines received their independence, the all of the issues that happened in the Philippines, all of those problems, they're now Filipino problems. Oh, to include veterans' benefits. Mm. So you know how we have this ongoing battle with GI Bill and our benefits being so lot backlogged and whatnot? My dad had to fight that for 70 years. Oh, it's like, good Lord. So, so he 
he was fighting not just the Philippine army to get his service be recognized, one, two, he had to fight the US military to get his benefits, which, and I hate to say it, but he, it took him a while to get his US citizenship. That was part of the deal. When FDR said the Filipinos fight for America or help us in defending democracy, you will be given a pathway to citizenship. That's how they got a lot of enlistees from the Philippines. Well, when the Rescission Act came in in 1946, guess what? That promise, gone. Oh, All gone. 250,000 Filipino troops didn't get their citizenship, even though they, they were faced with like the worst form of combat at the time, or they were prisoners of war. So there's that aspect. The other aspect is their veterans benefits. They didn't get it. It went on for decades. Um, it finally got resolved uh, under President Obama. I legit saw a check for my dad. It was from the Department of the Treasury for $15,000. Oh. That was his payment and restitution and or benefits or whatever euphemism you'd like to, to use because of uh, uh, that bill that was passed. I forget what the name of that bill was. So that was phase one. Um, he there were still fights that were going on in, in, in D.C. to get uh, Filipino veterans recognized for their contribution in the war, um, for their families recognized. And that's when I come in. So I found out that there was an organization called the Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project. Obviously, it's a Filipino veterans group, and their whole mission is to try and get uh, the US government to recognize Filipinos for their service in World War II. So in 2016, uh, President Obama signed the bill. And it was like one of those cathartic moments where both sides of the political spectrum had zero issues with a bill. <laughs> one time. <laughs> it's like the one time, it's like, Democrats and Republicans, they read the bill. They're like, I don't see a problem. Nobody's going to fight this. So they all oh. vote Congress <laughs> and Senate. They voted for it. It went straight to Obama's desk and he signed it. Instantly, you had all these veterans that qualified for the Congressional Gold Medal. Wow. To include by that. So in 2017, I believe it was. I showed up in San Francisco and a Congressional Gold Medal was presented to me as a representative of my dad and his family. Um, and we received this Congressional Gold Medal. Um, it never, but it, it, yeah, it, it didn't end. That didn't end. So, we've, so we, we finally caught up and we're finally given the due diligence and the due uh, care and recognition for these veterans. But you know, the fight goes on in some ways. Um, in 
and you've probably seen my my profile pics. I'm always dressed up as a stormtrooper. So that's a gimmick. Um, I run 5Ks, I do 10Ks, marathons, half marathons as an Imperial stormtrooper for fundraising purposes. Outstanding. <laughs> so during, during COVID, I raised like $20,000 doing various half marathons and full marathons. I did the Marine Corps ultra marathon also raised monies for these different groups like the Filipino Veterans Education Program, um, other veterans organizations, LGBT causes, whatever the case may be. But I've been able to raise successfully like or do three different fundraisers for the Filipino Veterans Recognition Project and managed to get like 50 congressional gold medals funded. That is outstanding. Outstanding. So, that, and that's what I do. I mean, again, I, my service is not as, as, as glorious as, as others, but you know, that's my little contribution uh, to the cause, as it were. Don't downplay your service. You've done 17 years of great service. <laughs> I know we spoke earlier with our dark humor, but that's 17 years of your life that you've given to this country in uniform, and you're on the green side. You're a green side Navy guy right now. You're a muddy, muddy Navy guy working with the Marines at Camp Pendleton. So you get to see some wild and crazy stuff there. I don't care what, what you're saying about downplaying, you're doing great things for your country. And your dad, my God, that's like a it's like a movie. But the whole <laughs> it's like a movie. You can make that into a movie both in uh, Tagalog and in uh, English and sell that thing around the world. Maybe you get an Oscar, maybe you could punch someone in the face on the stage and get away with it. Because I think you would with this in this matter. I'll probably get punched in the stage somehow. <laughs> That'll be probably from my family. <laughs> like, oh my God, you didn't do this right. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a it's a great story of your dad. And uh, wow, did he ever uh, get to see his friend again? Who actually told your grandfather where he was? Um, I believe so, but not for very long. Okay. Um, I do remember seeing an old photo of my dad back in the 70s because, you know, after the war and after he got his law degree, he became a big veterans uh, advocate. He also became a big uh, community organizer. He was always out there. And, like, and it, we grew up poor. We grew up in the Philippines, out in the country where, you know, we, we only had each other. But your name carries weight. So if, if you're a lawyer and you do all these cases and you work to, to help the community in general, you're, you're able to get some kind of credibility. So he used his name to do community works, community projects, you know, support local political causes, not like township stuff, you know, city council. But yeah, I saw this one picture of him wearing these kick-ass shades from the 70s, like those half faded shades, right? Throwing a wife beater, him and like 10 other guys with their, their, their pants rolled up, digging a trench for an irrigation for a rice paddy. And I'm like, that is not something I would do because I am an office bitch, <laughs> but that is cool. When <laughs> he's over 50 years old doing that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Every time I think about that story about, you know, surviving the Bataan Death March and going through um, the POW camp experience, it puts things into perspective. Like, 
my issues are nothing compared to what he went through. So whenever we go to like, or if I go to like an exercise or whatever, and it sucks out there, it's raining or whatever, I'm like, yeah, this is, it could be worse. I could be being, you know, taken off to a rice paddy and murdered by some Japanese dude. You know? <laughs> it could be always be worse. And uh, your your dad lived through a, a horrible, horrible experience there. And uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that with the Misfit Nation. No, it's my pleasure. Is uh, any way listeners can help you with your fundraising, uh, any website they can go to or how to contact you to maybe get involved with your Stormtrooper fundraising? Oh, it, I mean, it's it's really not that big of a deal of a, a fundraiser, but, you know, it, I'm on Facebook. You know, you can always find me. Uh, I'm on Instagram, you know, Stormtrooper Jeff. Um, there was a, you know, it's literally my moniker, Storm, Stormtrooper Jeff. If, literally, if you Google me, Stormtrooper Jeff, that's who shows up. It's my every mug. Turning it down, so I'll forget. <laughs> um but yeah that's that's very nice of you to to, to ask um typically i just do you know online fundraisers because I, I don't like dealing with money um so it goes straight from the facebook fundraising profile to the organization so i don't have to deal with it i just do all the hard work so you embrace the stuff well the money flows it's good exactly exactly and that makes it a little bit more worthwhile now i, I will say sometimes it does get uh, it does get tedious because you see your donation pool and it's like it's sitting at ten dollars, and your target is two thousand dollars. You're like, come on, what, what can I do? Do I need to start an OnlyFans or something? Like, what do I need to do? Need <laughs> to just wear the mask? <laughs> yeah, just, well, I'll I'll do a strip show with my mask. But what do you want? <laughs> How far do I have to go? <laughs> And if I, yeah, spark, yeah. do I need to stop to get more money too, or yeah, exactly. You got to do what you got to do, but you know, any it, whatever amount I raise, it's still, it's still a, it's still better than zero. Exactly. So that's a great attitude, a great story. Again, Jeff, thank you for agreeing to come on here and uh, share with Misfit Nation uh, a great story of a great service of your dad and his continued service for almost what 60 70 years almost 70 years after service he he served he still served country and served his his uh his heritage and people to try to get what was what was their just due to them and uh, that's yeah yeah well thank you for having me no problem brother Uh, enjoy the rest of your day at camp panel yeah oh yeah it's gonna be tough (laughs) all right You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are Fit Nation.